Welcome to Chapter 68 of the Kinsman Die Podcast, home of fantasy fiction based on Norse mythology that's written and read by me, Matt Bishop. In this podcast, I read my first novel, Kinsman Die, one chapter at a time. And with each episode, when it makes sense, I provide some commentary about the source materials I've referenced in the text. This week, we're back with Odin. Several chapters ago, Odin left Gladsheim and his wife Frigg to get answers from the dead witch Angerboda, who was Loki's first wife. Why Angerboda? Because Odin found his uncle Mimir trapped inside Angerboda's house. And in that house, he discovered the remnants of an old ritual that appeared to involve her children, Fenrir the wolf, Yorm the serpent, and Hel. Upon returning to his body, Odin unearthed a memory of Loki threatening him, kind of like Beavis and Butthead. Are you threatening me? His family, and everything he'd built. Odin decided he'd been blind and naturally cut out his own eye, and using the rune magic he seized when he'd hung upon Yggdrasil, bound his eye to the pool in Mimir's glade. So in this chapter, we find Odin making a pit stop on his journey to raise Angerboda from the dead. Let's stop in with him at the Circle K now. Chapter 68, Odin Odin shivered back into wakefulness at the rushing sound of fast-moving water. Sleipnir clomped to a stop beside the gyal and bent her head to drink. Odin yawned and slid from her back onto the slippery stones littering the river's bank. The river itself rushed past, gray beneath heavy, low-lying clouds. About nine yards downstream, the river turned frothy and white as it reached the rocks before the falls. When Sleipnir finished slurping water, he walked her back up to the pair of boulders he always camped beside. His breath, a fog around him, he dug in Sleipnir's saddlebags for some oats, removed her saddle, and attached the feed bag to her bridle. She wickered her thanks, and he began to brush her. Afterward, he kindled a fire, sat on a cold stone, and drank thirstily from a wineskin. He closed his eye or rubbed his temples and, ignoring the dull throb from his missing eye, leaned back against the boulder and just for a few moments enjoyed the fire's heat. Normally when he traveled, his familiars went with him, but they were out in Oscar doing his bidding. Besides, for what he planned, they'd be more hindrance than help. And for that task, he needed Sather, which was why he'd stopped here. He cast an eye toward the gull's fast, dark current and the dozens of partially submerged rocks compromising his route to the river's center. Just beyond them, to his right, the yawl fell hundreds of feet to flow beneath the rude bridge onto the shores where the dead lingered. None living besides him knew this path, besides Sleipnir and Ratatoskar, who himself knew many secret ways through the realms. Odin called Gungnir to his hand, walked down to the river's edge and set booted foot upon the first broad, slick stone that lay belly up along the bank like a washed-up corpse. He sprang to the next rock, and then used Gungnir to vault to the next stone and the one beyond it. From here, the path grew more dangerous. A dozen rocks waited for his feet to slip. If they did, Ron would certainly cast her net and try to snare him. Not that she ever would. He'd dodged that net more than once in his many winters. Two rocks left, the first a leap, the second just a step. On his blind side, the water fell away into the mist that obscured the height of the drop, what he risked falling into. He held Gungnir sideways before him for balance and turned his head to look down. 
Memory stirred of when, as a much younger man, he'd stared into the Ganunga Gap and felt a deep, belly-clenching awe. Now he almost wanted to throw himself over the edge to experience the rush of wind and then the snap of his wings when he shifted at the last possible moment. Instead, he returned to his task. Sol picked that moment to throw a spear of light on the remainder of his path. The next rock was wide, but pitched just slightly toward him, so he'd be jumping onto a sloped, slick surface. He glared at him, that rock, a snow bear at bay. He jumped, the wind's chill fingers plucked at him, his cloak billowed and he hit the rock at an unplanned angle. His feet slid, he grabbed the sharp stone, Gungnir clattered away and vanished into the darkness on his blind side, but he held on. Gasping, clothes wet from the spray, beard dripping, he hauled himself upright. Teetering and tired, he made the short step to the final, mercifully flat-topped boulder at the river center. In the past, he'd tried to simply fly to this rock, but there was something perverse about the gyol. It didn't like him, this river, into which the blood of both Ymir and Autumbla had once flowed. I didn't want him here, doing what he was about to do. No matter his shape, it was always a struggle getting to this cold, wet rock in the middle of a chill gray river that emptied into the sea where the dead took ship for the gap. He unclipped his cloak and dropped it beside him. He called Gungnir to him. She flickered into his hand, ice cold and frosty. He marshaled his strength, eyes shut, face upturned to catch what warmth he could from Sol. As he listened to the girl's thundering passage, he slowed his breathing and extended Gungnir over the foaming, rushing water. He plied the long spear in rhythmic movements parallel to the water. Stiff with cold and frozen clothing, his first efforts were jerky. But after several long passes, he eased into the motion, his entire body moving along with the spear as he plied it above the gray river. Again, he closed his eye and focused on seeing the flow of witch blood within his mind's eye. It coursed within the torrent. He caught a tendril and slowly spun Gungnir in his hands, curling that tendril around the flat of the spear's blade. He brought the spear back to catch another and another, wrapping the mingled blood of both the departed mother and Ymir around the blade. On and on he went. Sometimes he caught a tendril. Sometimes it slipped away, pulled down by some current in the gyol. He kept going until the witch blood was wrapped around Gungnir's blade like a cloud around a mountain's peak. Back on shore, he stared tiredly into the fire and sipped his wine. Sol had retreated behind dense gray clouds. His hands were red and raw from the wet and cold and from scouring, straightening, cleaning, sorting, and then flattening the witch blood like women did with bats of sheep's raw wool. Such was the price of Sather. Now that bat of witch blood, fluffy, coarse, and damp, was wrapped around Gungnir's blade, and ready for the next stage. He picked up one of his mostly depleted spindles and unspooled a knife-long strand of remaining thread. With Gungnir in the crook of one arm and the spindle pinned beneath his armpit, he teased free a bit of the raw witch blood and drew it down in a wispy tuft. He brought up the thread and, between his thumb and forefinger, spliced the witch blood to the finished thread. That done, he withdrew a heavy soapstone whorl inscribed with runes and affixed it to the bottom of the spindle. 
Trapping Gungnir securely between his arm and body, he set the spindle spinning and dropped it. With his right hand, he drew the witch blood down from where it was wrapped around Gungnir's blade. With swiftly dancing fingers, he spun it into a thread of magic he could use to power his charms. He could use the raw stuff if he had to, but the refined witch thread lent much more precision. And so he stood there, fingers dancing delicately up and down the thread of magic running from the bat to the spindle whirling before him. Firelight danced across his face and threw wild shadows in the landscape around him. The wind cavorted past, occasionally blowing gray smoke into his face, but with his eye closed, he held his breath until the wind shifted again. Well, folks, that was chapter 68 of Kinsman Die. I hope you enjoyed it. Odin stops alongside the river Gjol, spelled G-J-O-L-L. In Old Norse, it means loud noise, which is why I have the river flowing rapidly and then a waterfall near where Odin stops. According to Snorri, the Gjol is one of the Elevegar. It is specifically the river of the underworld. There's a bit more to it, both in the myth and how I've used the Gjol, but I'll get into some of that in a later chapter. The rest of this chapter largely involved providing more insight into the magic system I created. One of the types of magic in Norse myth is Sather. In the myths, Odin learned Sather from Freya, who is a member of the Vanir tribe, or pantheon of gods. And if we want to get into comparative mythology, Freya roughly equates to Inanna of Sumerian myth, Ishtar of Mesopotamian myth, and Aphrodite of Greek myth. These are all basically the same goddess figure, but that's a rabbit hole for another time. In this chapter, we see Odin harvesting the blood, witch blood, W-I-T-C-H, that flows within the river Gjol. That blood was shed by Ymir, the progenitor of the Jotun, and Odin's great-grandfather on his mother's side and Autumbla, who I refer to as the Departed Mother. In Norse myth, Autumbla is a cow that licks Odin's grandfather, Buri, free from a block of primordial ice. Why their blood is in the river at all is part of Odin's backstory, which I will leave for another day as well. In Norse myth, Odin's use of magic and Sather in particular is considered shameful because it is something that women do. Sather is also associated with sending out and bringing back, like casting one's intention out into the world to do something, like find a duck and bring it back to me. And in using Sather, you can also deliberately, or by accident perhaps, attract the attention of greater or lesser spirits, also known as disir. I've come across a few academic articles that associate the etymology of the word Sather with chords and snares, but also with speaking and singing. Obviously, cords can be used to catch and bind, and snares are used to trap. And some archaeological finds have uncovered staffs used by female magic practitioners, mostly cirruses, that look like distaffs. A distaff is a wooden stick, probably about head height or so, onto which wool is wound for spinning. And spinning and wool working and all that kind of different stuff was traditionally women's work. In this chapter, I cite a whorl, W-H-O-R-L, which was used as a counterweight to aid in actually spinning the thread. And I mention a bat, B-A-T-T, which is basically just a bundle of fibers, which is the raw wool ready for processing. 
Also recall that Vidar uses a hand distaff. It's on his belt opposite his sword, and he has short hooks on his belt from which he hung the spindle of witch thread Odin gave him. So I combined all of these different elements into my Sather magic system. The raw material is the witch blood. We see Odin gathering it from the river, and then he processes that material in much the same way raw wool is processed before it is spun into the material that is used to create wool that can be used for actually creating clothing. I watched a bunch of videos on what that process of actual spinning looks like, so I tried to describe that as best I could. So in this scene, we have Odin engaged in the women's work of spinning raw magic into refined witch thread, which is stored on spindles, and he can then use that refined thread to cast spells in the class of magic called Sather. We'll soon see Freya use Sather, but how she uses it and her power source, so to speak, is a little different from what Odin uses. Giving Odin a material cost for his spells, for you D&D folks out there, which I am one of you, at least for his Sather, was one way to limit his power. Otherwise, he could just do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, and that would potentially be plot-breaking. Vidar ran into the limits of Sather in his early chapters, and we encountered one of the limits of being a Bearsark, which is being bound to a spirit, which gives you extraordinary strength and immunity to certain types of weapons and that type of thing. If you screw up, the spirit can take control of your body. Even Odin is not immune to that limit, as one of his early chapters demonstrated. Odin also has access to other types of magic. We know he has, quote-unquote, old songs taught to him by his uncle, who is Mimir. And there's a hint in the myths that Mimir is Odin's mother's brother. Odin's mother is Besla. Odin used one of those old songs, powered in that particular case by Sather, to speed the passage of the Einherar to the town of Halls in one of those early chapters as well. We also saw Odin use rune magic to free Vidar from his Fulgia's power and then rebind and subdue that Fulgia, the Fulgia being the spirit, the Disir, that is bound to Vidar, and there's one in Odin as well, that makes them both Bersarks. Odin also used rune magic to bind his severed eye to the pool in Mimir's glade, and then to keep that eye alive. He inscribed a rune on his eye, if you recall. Odin can also send his spirit out of his body into the spirit realm. And we know that Odin can speak with the dead. He's claimed that power himself, and Frigg alluded to it in the previous chapter, saying that this whole murder investigation would be way easier if Odin could just ask the dead woman who killed her. And if you've seen the movie Dungeons and Dragons, there's some funny stuff that happens there with the Speak with Dead spell. So what else can Odin do? Well, he is often called the Father of Enchanters, or Father of Magic, because all your magic are belong to him. Next week, we're back with Frigg in the next stage of her investigation into Bera's murder. Until then, if you have the time and inclination, please rate or review the podcast. That helps boost the show's visibility as to sharing it. As always, I'm going to read from both the Bellows and Larrington translations of the Havamal, the sayings of the High One, Odin. Bellows, verse 68. Fire for men is the fairest gift, and power to see the sun. Health as well, if a man may have it, and a life not stained with sin. Larrington, verse 68. Fire is best for the sons of men, and the sight of the sun. His health, if a man can manage it, living without disgrace. 
So I will again reference Kodratov's translation and commentary because Bellow's use of the word sin is, in my opinion, not a very good translation. Because sin is a great word for Christians, but not so much for those belonging to a pre-Christian world, much less the god, lowercase g, of that pagan world, or one of the gods. Larrington translates the word, which is loster in Old Norse, as disgrace. Gardertoff says the word loster does not express any contempt for those who do not manage to avoid a disgrace. Instead, it presents it only as a lack of some kind. So it could be rendered as living without error or rebuke. Kodratov also suggests that the first two lines are especially relevant for people who live in cold climates. Speaking just for myself, when it's a cold winter day and the sun is out, well, that's near to be in shorts weather. Thanks for listening.